You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome once again to the Revision Path Podcast. My name's Maurice Cherry. Welcome to February, everyone. It's Black History Month, and it's time for this year's installment of 28 Days of the Web. Check out 28daysoftheweb.com and see a different designer or developer featured every day for the month of February in conjunction with Black History Month. I think you'll really like this year's list. There's a lot of great talent out there. I spent a lot of time putting it together, so check it out again, 28daysoftheweb.com. Speaking of great talent, I've got another great interview for you today, but first let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp helps entrepreneurs and small businesses with their email marketing efforts by managing your contacts, sending emails, and letting you track the results. One thing that I really like about MailChimp is their automation workflow method. So you can set up those neat kind of multi-day drip email campaigns that a lot of people do. Really simple. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. Hover simplifies domain management like no other company that I've used before. I use Hover to register all of my domains and you get free private registration, which is pretty cool. Hover has over 250 top level domains, so you can have a truly unique domain for your next project like .works or .foundation or .hiphop. Yes, you can have a .hiphop domain with Hover. Purchase a domain today, use the promo code 28DOTW and save 10% off your first purchase. Now Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at just two bucks each. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, today's Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month, so check them out, creativemarket.com. A special thanks goes out to Liz Ellis and Heather Sakai. Heather Sakai uh, is with Go Media. We love Go Media. Two listeners who nominated Revision Path for the 10th Annual Podcast Awards. Now, if you're listening and this podcast has helped you out in any sort of way, then please nominate us for the 10th Annual Podcast Awards in the technology category. Go to podcastawards.com, nominate us today. Today's actually the last day that you can send in a nomination, so there'll be more information about that in the show notes. My presentation for South by Southwest 2015, Where Are the Black Designers? That's going to take place on March 14th at 5 p.m. in the Austin Convention Center Ballroom E. Now, I'm still raising funds to get there. Your help, of course, is greatly appreciated for that. Check the link in the show notes for the GoFundMe campaign. I'm at about 35% of my goal right now, but the sooner I hit the goal, the better. Giving myself an unofficial deadline of February 15th to see if I can reach it. So please donate what you can. And lastly, Revision Path is excited to partner with Lesbians Who Tech for the 2015 Lesbians Who Tech Summit in San Francisco. Save 25% off registration with the code LWTREVPATH. That's also going to be in the show notes as well. All right, enough for this long intro. Let's get on with this week's interview. I asked Yutamba, Sila, and Gita this question. If you weren't a designer, what would you be doing? Here's what he had to say. But uh, no, I, I would love to work in animation. Um, I would love I would love to someday like be a producer of a really great animated feature or an animated TV show. Like I, I think animation is um, is just this is this medium where you can almost anything is possible. And I'm such a big fan of like uh, specifically more or less uh, Japanese animators and directors that have made just beautiful animation or really great stories in a in a format that felt more real than than film but at the same time allowed me to suspend my belief and take me to somewhere visually that is just really amazing so uh yeah definitely animation this is revision path let's start the show all right so tell us who you are and what you do Hi, I'm Gitamba Silangita. I am currently a senior strategist at Care Creative in Brooklyn, New York. And what I do is spend a lot of time helping our clients understand, you know, where they can get a competitive edge and what trends are happening and how they can leverage that to help create value for not only their business but also the people that use their products. And so that's a lot of just figuring out how to tell and you know and get the client from point A to point B. 
And I'm also kind of just classically trained as a designer, specifically visual design and industrial design and like software, like, you know, inter- like interactive. It's kind of like where I think we're probably going to get into at some point in this interview. Design is kind of nebulous. So I tend to say multidisciplinary. <laughs> All right. And we'll get to, yeah, you're right. We'll get to that in a bit. But tell me about Carrot. How'd you get started there? It's a company that like I've kind of just always known about. And I grew up for some time in Connecticut and uh, Carrot was founded in Hamden, Connecticut. And it started off as uh, three guys just building websites at the like kind of the first phase of design on the web where we were just trying to get what we loved about good print design online. And so they were doing a lot of that work. And then as more of us started to get online and sort of use social networks and interacting with like companies and their profiles and our, and our profiles on social networks, we started doing more and more content, creative content, creative strategies for those clients. And, uh, and that's kind of when I started to find about it, find out about them. And, uh, I was freelancing for like five years, kind of just cause I was really into like continuing to learn where design was and what design was doing at different levels of like business and, and consulting. And uh, I uh, was really attracted to the kind of energy, the kind of hustle and the kind of work that was happening at Carrot. And I came around specifically around a time where they had just been acquired by Vice Magazine, the media company, and just seeing how they've been growing. And I just, you know, it felt like a good place to be to, you know, learn a lot of new things, which is probably one of the big reasons I came there. Nice. So when you say you're a multidisciplinary artist, and we spoke about this a little bit before we started recording, what exactly does that mean? Well, I'm definitely not a multidisciplinary artist, mostly because I think first and foremost, I think art is like more or less fine art is is very much about the artist making something for a select amount of people to enjoy, whereas design is both art and science, where we're really tasked with looking into society, finding a problem, and then solving for it using different tools and different ways of getting to a solution that comes from being taught different design methodologies. So when I say multidisciplinary, it just speaks to that a lot of people practice various disciplines of design. For me, I practice graphic design or visual design, as well as industrial design. So like the way physical three-dimensional objects have to look, as well as interaction and user experience, which is how you're going to use these things or how we would like to build the experience of you using these things from you learning about the product or the service that I'm building for whoever to you like telling people about the product and the service that you're using that complete experience, every touch point, every like interaction you're going to have, we're going to try to think through so that we are delivering what we think is the most value for you and the money you're spending on this product or this brand. So yeah, in a roundabout way, multidisciplinary has just always been this catch-all term to speak to that, like, I know a lot of different types of design and I practice a lot of different types of design. And your background kind of really speaks to that as well. Is that right? Because yeah. you started you started off not in design. Right, yeah. So my parents are both kind of academic, so I grew up in a very academic kind of leaning family and also just one that supported curiosity. And at the time in my life, I was really kind of thinking that the the place that I wanted to kind of put my energy towards was learning how to, well, solve a, a different kind of puzzle, which is like the problem of like being sick or ill. So I studied biomolecular science in college with the idea that I would go to med school. And somewhere along the line, I kept kind of going back to my first love, which is, you know, still puzzles, but understanding how to solve for them by building or creating some sort of surprise and delight for someone. And so that led me from leaving medicine to going into design. And then graphic design was like the first thing that I was ever introduced to. Like in high school, I had a class and I really excelled at it, but I excelled at understanding the software. I didn't actually know like the theories of design, like the grid and typography. I just knew how to use Photoshop really well. Mm-hmm. By going to school and by immersing myself in design is when I started to learn about the rules that come from different types of disciplines of design. The rules that kind of come with like the physics of being a human interacting with an object kind of came from learning about medicine. And learning about those is like, I usually I guess you would confer, like refer to them as a design constraint. Uh, learning about how to solve for those problems for a human, for a business was just kind of why that keeps snowballing. And you kind of just start to see that like, for me, it was like, oh, I'm really good at graphic design, but I really love understanding why people do anything and what makes them tick. And then building even more complex things to give somebody like a simple experience. So 
I guess I'm just kind of attracted to like a lot of the things I'm kind of highlighting, puzzles, complexity, designing objects or services to give somebody a really interesting experience. So all of those just came from continually like, you know, getting more and more excited about what design could do for people. One thing that I, I ran across as I was doing my, my research on you was something that you created called the retrospective. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you get the idea to create that? What, what was that about? Um, again, I think it just goes back to like kind of a little being really lucky of like who I was meeting in my formative years. So when I decided that I wanted to like maybe start exploring non-medical things, I the next ladder down from that was kind of computer programming and computer graphics. And I had a family member that had worked at like Square Enix as a kid and worked at different types of startups in the early 90s. And and I, it was sort of still like, I guess, like a traditional way of anybody kind of learning about the industry. And then I went to college in Connecticut for a little bit. And I met one of my good friends now, Jason Reed, who he works as a strategist and a researcher for NBC. And he kind of introduced me to the not like the idea that like, hey, if you're creative and you know how to connect these kind of dots that I was kind of starting to learn skill wise, like in college that I was strategically and trend wise able to understand, you know, some of the moves I think a business should make to connect with somebody. And the way that kind of came ended up kind of formulating in my early years was the retrospective, which was both a product uh, we had come up in the era of like web services like MySpace and social networking and niche community websites were all becoming like a thing now that people were actually investing and spending a lot of time in. And in college, I was very interested and to this day, like I'm, I'm very passionate about art, about music, about fashion, about culture, about technology. And I was also really into writing and I was also really into interacting with these people that were my peers, that were my idols. And I wanted, and I, to be completely honest, I wanted a way to have access to them in a professional way that would give me access to them. So <laughs> I came, so to be, uh, so the, the idea kind of first started off as I was playing in bands and I was really into a lot of different musicians and I was like, how can I get free press passes? How can I interview these what, guys? <laughs> like, What were you playing? Uh, what were you playing? I, I played guitar and I, and I played guitar in like post-hardcore band. I grew up in New England and, and in the mid 2000s, like the guitar rock and guitar hardcore from like DC and New Jersey, New York scene was really big. And I was into a lot of really interesting music and bands and I really wanted a way to have access to them. And the, the best way was that like kids were using digital technology at the time to make their own zines, which was a great way for artists to connect with those like niche audiences by having somebody who was creating a platform for people to digest this stuff. And that, that was actually like zines are like a very old type of communication that's been around almost every music culture. But then in like, you know, I was in college in like the 3000s. So like all of a sudden you could create a blog and people were going to these blogs and reading about them. And then we started learning about other people that have become really good friends of mine now or good colleagues who I've worked with. I've learned about like Jeff Staple, Heron Preston, these people who are brokering a, a culture to companies who are looking to like have access to those cultures. So just in the same vein that I wanted access to these types of personalities who I was just really interested in that were doing something that I as a designer, as a creative, as a as a person that's just inquisitive wanted to like learn from, brands wanted access to like people like me who they could then sell things to. So we started just kind of writing and then as we kept kind of scaling the idea, and this was all the same while while we're all in college we started getting calls from brands, from big personalities, from artists that were like, hey, we want to work with you or do something with you or create a piece of content with you. And that led us to having really great opportunities to meet people like Donald Glover and get to hang out with him uh, right before he started pivoting away from being a TV artist, I mean, a TV actor to doing film and more specifically Childish Gambino. And then we mm -hmm. also got to work with brands like Nike because their PR agency had reached out to us and wanted us to talk about their, at the time, new experimental like running stores that they were developing. We got to work with a lot of great artists, a lot of great talent, and just a lot of different like genres from like, or disciplines from graphic design, architecture, music. And a lot of it was just 
like, I guess part of my own personality. Like I never see like if something is out there and something can be like accessed, there's, I just have to figure out how to get from point A to point B. And that's kind of how the retrospective kind of came to be. Like I wanted to strategically get closer to something or, or have more access. And I designed the retrospective as a way for me and my friends to be able to write access and be able to participate in these types of things that were really interesting to me or my friends. And so it also became a platform for my friends in that same regard. Like if they were into something, it was like, now we could be like, let's go ask them and see if they want to work with us. But I did that for years. And it was like this great springboard that led to job opportunities for myself or my friends. It led to projects for the retrospective. It was just like a really great kind of do-it-yourself project that led, ended up turning into a, a much bigger thing than it was. I was, I was about to say, was that kind of the first job or well, not really job. That was the first project you had where you realized this is what I want to do. Yeah, I, I think it was it was becoming and it was actually the first job where I was being a designer, but I wasn't a designer in the sense that I was just like pushing pixels. I was a designer that was having to think strategically about where was the retrospective in the year that I started it, and where did I want it to be next year? what were we doing this year that was working, what you're like, like experimenting with content, experimenting with reach, experimenting with who we could talk to. And it was becoming this thing where, and even at the time I was designing what the retro logo looked like. I was designing the presentations that went out to the companies or the brands that we were working with or the personalities we wanted to do with. But at the same time I was producing video content, which had nothing to do with design in like the way that I'd been taught, but it was still getting the design for film and for motion and it was this really cool first kind of project that I kind of owned and managed and led. I had a, uh, about 10 or 15 team members at the time, some in Japan, some in Germany, some in the States and like different coasts. So it was also kind of learning how to manage other people, how to you know work with PR people, how to work with like more or less senior people or the C-suite people at some companies to get them to like, you know, work with us. And so it was, and, and at the time, again, I'm a college student. I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I'm literally in school learning about it as I'm trying to do it. Wow. And you said that your family's kind of really academic. Do they really kind of give you the space to let all this happen um, easily? <laughs> I have uh, Congolese, very immigrant parents. So by, by nature, design wasn't something that they saw immediately having an analog to success. Because as a kid, I was drawing a lot and I was really into form and stuff like that. But my mom and dad were more or less like, well, either you're working as an engineer or you're working as an architect. They saw it more as a science and less as an art. And so I've had a lot of support from my family to definitely explore. But it was definitely one of those things where it was a little misunderstood and it wasn't always as straightforward as they, as every other kind of like profession out there where you're like, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a mechanic, you're a, like, a, yeah. like a social worker, a psychologist where – you have a very defined process that everyone can kind of peer into and magically under, not magically, that's a really weird way to put it, but they can see the process and understand that's how you divine what you do. Like, so if you're a mechanic, you're, you're technically and mechanically leaning. So fixing my car comes from that skill. But when you're a designer and you're mixing art and science to come up with something that then is both objectively supposed to be able to be looked at as like, solving a problem but then also subjectively people are going to be like that's pretty or that pleases me or it's very difficult and a lot of people have a hard time going like why can't anybody do that it's the same way when you look at like contemporary art anybody could have made this it's like not really mm -hmm. i think a lot of times it's just hard to explain to people like hey i think a, lo a lot about something and then i creatively give you something that you didn't know you wanted but now you can't live without <laughs> like like <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of hard to like get people to understand. Like, and a lot of it is not like a straight line. It's not like you wake up at nine and at night, and 10 o'clock, you got it. It's, it's definitely something that has like milestones. It's got phases. Like, and I get them right now. I'm just trying to describe the creative process or the design process. And a lot of it is like, definitely. Yeah. There's a, there's a science to this. And then some of it is like walking away from the work, watching a movie, going to eat dinner, taking a shower and then having that aha moment where like it all clicks. And then you tell other people and they're like, Oh, that's right. That definitely clicks because the insight and the problem it solves are so obvious. It couldn't be anything else. And so it's still very hard to like long story short to describe to people what it is that I do and why it's important. But at the same time, 
we're living in an era where a lot more people are starting to be like able to tell the difference when something is considered and measured and a lot of people toiled over it so that you could really enjoy it. A lot of my, the way I think about design now is that like something that is well-designed almost feels like a piece of art because it feels like someone was taking so much painstaking time to make this thing just like feel and work right. And so, yeah, long story short, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> Would you say that you're satisfied creatively? You know what? Like, that's a great question. Mostly because a lot of people go to work because, or they, they, they spend a lot of their career talking about my career makes me happy. I'm like, I don't really think as a designer that your, your job is ever going to make you like happy. Mostly uh-huh. because if you think about all of the consensus that we have to build just to get people to like say okay to something, at best, like we're always satisfied with our work and we're always more than happy to find time or a reason to go back and iterate our work. And so I'm, I'm very satisfied with my job, but I guess like, and that wasn't really your question, but I, I'm definitely satisfied creatively because the kinds of interesting questions that get asked of me to solve are always very interesting. And I've gotten questions like, hey, Gitamba, how do we stop the commercial sexual exploitation of women? And as a designer, Gitamba, solve or a research or come up with something that'll solve for that. And I've definitely mm-hmm. been asked like, hey, Gitamba, we want to sell more gift cards this quarter. What do we do? What are we going to make that gets more people excited about giving gift cards? So creatively, that just spans the gamut of interests, new curiosities that I'm going to have to learn, things that I'm going to have to become an expert in very quickly so that, it, so that I can make an expert informed recommendation about something. So yeah, I'm very satisfied. I, I definitely get a lot of really interesting things to solve for. Have you had any mentors that have kind of helped you along in your journey? Yeah, no, absolutely. I didn't, I, I've been very lucky through friendship, through colleagues I've met. And I think also just for me, mentors aren't, I think a lot of times you think about mentors as someone who's older than you and more experienced. And like, and I definitely have people that I look at to like that as a mentor, but sometimes my mentors are friends that are only like a couple years removed from me or, and I've had a friend's mentors from my time at Apple. I've had mentors from my time, like in advertising agencies. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Husani Oakley, who I consider a mentor. And they're all people who will help you not lose your mind as a designer, who you'll be able to talk to and get critique from and you trust to tell you both the thing that you need to hear when you know you don't want to get back on the horse and the thing that you need to hear when you need to get off your pedestal and kind of just think about what you're doing. And, and I definitely advocate that you should find people in your life that you have that kind of relationship with that can help you see where you are in your career, talk about where you are in life, be able to like, you know, expand your experiences, expand your taste, and also for you to hopefully be able to do the same for them down the line. So yeah, I've definitely been a big fan of mentors. How do you approach a new project? You kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier when you were saying like you have to kind of become an expert at something really quickly. What are the ways or are there any like methods or techniques that you use when it comes to attacking a new project? Yeah, I think one of the biggest is like if if you have a more formal training of design, you kind of just fall back to the big stages of understanding what you're attacking. For me, it really starts with taking in all the stakeholders. So in, I gave you two examples. In one example, I was working for a nonprofit who that was their brief. How do we, as a nonprofit, develop something that will help us attack the problem that the commercial sexual exploitation, like sex trafficking is like a billion dollar a year industry, like bigger than the profits of companies like Apple. How do we, as a nonprofit, develop something that's going to help these women deal with this challenge? So in a situation like that, first and foremost, I know nothing of the sex trafficking trade. So we're doing research. We're reading everything from academic papers to news articles to theses. I'll spend time going to talk to subject matter experts. So people who maybe are like in that case, I got to speak to my father who's an economist and I got to go speak to public health workers. So it's quickly getting to the point where I feel like I have enough information, not only from the the thing that I have to solve for. So in the case that I just described, those are all external things. Sometimes it's like, hey, the foundation, how do you guys make decisions? Who makes the decision? How fast do you make decisions? You know, what are you looking to do once this decision is made? Like, how quickly do you want to be able to implement or change it or pivot from it? So 
a lot of that upfront is just trying to spend those like and and a lot of times clients don't want to spend money on research, but it's so important because as an expert, what I know is that I need time to research so that I, as an expert, can make an informed decision about what I need to recommend for you to do. So that's usually right. like my first and, – and, and I'll use – design thinking is kind of the big buzzword around this kind of thing. But there's a lot of techniques like mind mapping, like personas. There's so many different things that you can do to get in the head of the people – that you want to be able to like build something for. And that's might be doing ethnographic research or doing anthropological research or doing field studies. So there's so many tools for you to go out and research and come back and get data. So that can be qualitative or quantitative. So focus groups, surveys, and whatever it takes to solve for that problem, like we'll, and that we can get time to do, we'll do. And that's usually like my upfront is just like become as like knowledgeable about the topic as possible and then once you know you have all this knowledge, it's then moving all that knowledge into a place where, you know, what can we build with the constraints that we have, be it technically, be it the users that use this thing, be it the business, and then you make it. And and for me, and again, this kind of goes back to multidisciplinary, the problems I get to solve are sometimes graphic or visual, sometimes they're industrial, sometimes they're service oriented. And so at that point, it's usually where I work in a cross-functional team with other designers, business people, technical people, so like developers or engineers, and we're working together to come up and brainstorm ways with all this knowledge that we've acquired in ways that we think that we can execute and build and to like, you know, and show that, you know, that we are addressing it and, and that people will use this thing and people, and we'll be able to measure the success of it down the line. And so we move from brainstorm to developing prototypes to testing as like, and we want to test as early and as fast as possible because even though we've acquired all this knowledge, we don't know if the thing that we've built is even right. So the, as the soonest that we can like show somebody something that'll get us the kind of feedback that we need to be able to learn, the better. And then as we keep moving forward, eventually we're get, hopefully getting down to the point where we have you know something very high fidelity and detailed design, and it's going to be ready for us to ship or send to manufacturing, depending on what it is. That's a really interesting point that you mentioned about getting the clients and the stakeholders to kind of buy into the research portion of right. it, I find that can be really hard at the beginning because they're just ready to like get started. They they want to know when's it going to be done, how much is it going to cost, et cetera, and not really thinking, okay, let's slow down. Right. Let's think yeah. about how do we, how we approach this, you know, in a smart way instead of just kind of rushing in, guns blazing. And I think that's also to some extent that's also like the like a great way to tell how good a designer is. A lot of people are going to come to you as the magician or the artist on the pedestal that's going to listen to them talk once and then how somehow you're supposed to magically divine and pull out of your hat this thing that they're just going to love and adore. And because as designers, I think I mentioned earlier, it's hard to tell people that you made this thing that they're falling in love with because it just came out of you and your team's head. It's hard yeah. for them to make that leap because then they start to wonder, you know, they start to question. It's like, what exactly about this thing is it that that I'm so attracted to and why is it? And that's usually when you can start explaining to people like we studied this and that. That's why it's really fun to read case studies about how someone solved a design problem. And with clients, a lot of times it's showing them like, like, hey, I know nothing of your business. So the time that it's going to spend for me to understand who you guys are, what your motivations are, who the people are that use your products and why they think they're using their products. It's going to help us just be able to like make decisions based more and more on like concrete data than on people's opinions. And that's one of the best parts about research is that like, yeah, some clients are definitely going to say like, oh, we don't want to pay for research. But then it's going to be like, hey, guess what? Research doesn't necessarily always mean that we're going to spend like months and years trying to understand something. It may just mean we just need time like sitting down with your customers. We need time sitting down with you people here at the company X. It means getting to the point where now we can tell you that like, hey, even though you're doing this year over year, the reality is these like touch points, these building blocks, these decisions are being made poorly on the way to like making that money and they could be better. And maybe like that's the part of the research that tells us that, hey, client, the question that you even came to us with is wrong. And, and that's probably one of the biggest things is that like, Everyone, especially designers and engineers alike, we all want to do it the best way we can do it with the best tools that we can. And the way you're going to do that is by having as much information as possible and as much of that information firsthand from not like, you know, research that's been done 
months ago, years ago, but like you guys did recently. So it's fresh in everybody's mind. I had a, a fairly big project that I did last year and I was approaching the client and telling them that we needed to do user testing because they were really wanting to know how people kind of moved around and used the website. They were really trying to maximize the amount of donations that they got. This was a nonprofit website. And so I remember I brought it up to them like, we should do user testing and see what is it that when people go to your website, what are they actually thinking? How are they feeling? What is preventing them from making a donation or what do they need to see in order to make a donation? And I remember telling them this and I sort of added it on to the proposal and the invoice and they're like, well, do we really need to have like this user testing part? I just feel like that's, that's just some extra money. And I'm like, well, it is extra. And I'm explaining the, you know, the reasoning behind it. Got them to sign off on it. They did it. The user testing came back. It was very valuable information to tell them like, you know, you need to have trust symbols on your website, like the little Norton badge and all that stuff, which seems inconsequential. But I guess if you're just a random person wanting to donate to a charity, that's something that you need to see to say, okay, I trust this organization. Did all this user testing, gave it to them in a really nice like 15 page report and everything. They didn't even look at it. Wow. <laughs> they were just like, okay, yeah, this is fine. And I mean, some of the stuff that the recommendations, like we told them, like, these are the things you need to do. They decided, yeah, we're not going to do that. And so when it came, you know, end of year and they're looking at their fundraising goals, they're like, well, we didn't reach the fundraising goals that we thought we would have. And I'm like, well, maybe the, the things that were in this user testing report are the reasons why. Like, maybe you should look back at that and consider some of those things and not put them on a back burner. So the importance of doing that research if there are clients that are listening, designers aren't just like telling you this to blow smoke up your ass. You know, we're telling you this because we're the experts and we're trying to let you know that there are reasons behind why we're doing this. We're not just doing it blindly. We're hopefully doing this based off of data. We're not just doing it, you know, on a whim. Well, you're preaching so to the choir of why I think we have kind of, and, and this is kind of moving to a different topic, but like, the reality is a lot of people are who are designers do not have the kind of language and the kind of command of management people, C-suite people to have that kind of discussion because a lot of us are still kind of taught to sell the beauty of our work. Look at our margins. Look at the white space. Look at all that. Most people who are CEOs, chief technical officers, the people who've got to sign the checks, they don't really yeah. care. They, right. they And I think that's probably that's partially why I think like prototypes over presentations. Like anytime we can have a physical conversation about the thing that we're actually building versus the picture of the thing that we're building, it's way, right. again, it goes back to like anything that we can present to the, I would always say like in your case, like anything that we can show to the client that's coming from concrete data, meaning data from their email list, data from their social, data from their brick and mortar stores, data from focus groups that they've done, Anytime that we can just like in your example of user testing, anytime that we can frame the argument is that the more that we knew about the user, the more that we can make smart decisions about, you know, what they want and how to get them to the thing that we want them to do, which is buy something versus mm -hmm. I think a lot of times a lot of designers are very caught up. And also, to some extent, they don't have the language to be talking at that table and you're going hey, I would really love to know more about the user. And they're making the argument of like money and is it even really important? And you're yeah. still kind of going back and talking about how easy something is. And a lot of time it's like that, you know, I think it's like, it's what kind of keeps designers with a, a hand tied behind their back is like not being able to talk about the statistics that like the non-fun design part, the things that have nothing to do with Photoshop <laughs> and Illustrator is what intimidates yeah. some designers. But the reality is, like, that's the stuff that's going to get, like, the person's got to sign your check to be like, okay, you're right, let's go. Versus yeah. let's talk about how much stakeholder doesn't like orange and you've chosen orange. Right, you have to sell them on the value, not just on the presentation. Exactly. So this might be a bit of a controversial question, but I, I saw as I was doing my research, you wrote this piece that was on Agency Spy that also ended up, I think you put it on Medium as well, and it was titled... Is it racist? Oh, I yeah. think that's what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, you remember what I'm talking? Yeah. yeah, is it racist? That was that was that was a heated. That that, that I learned uh, a couple things from that. One, don't pick your fights on agency spy, and and two, I think it was also to some extent. Looking back, I feel like I need to rewrite that. But the premise of the article came about because 
Mountain Dew had given Tyler, the creator, money to make odd future commercials for the Mountain Dew brand. And, and one of the commercials that they did has Tyler and his crew from Odd Future in a lineup and a beaten and battered white woman is behind a police plexiglass screen and she's in a lineup and there's Tyler, Domo Genesis, I think one of the kids from Odd Future and a goat, which I think they call Felicia the goat. And in the line, I think I remember yeah, that. I it's, think a, I remember it's a really, that. in the way I even wrote the piece looking back, the biggest thing about the ad is that it forces us to deal with something that's culturally something that we know probably happens and yet we don't talk about. A, a bunch of young black men are now in a lineup and a white woman is with police officers and being told which one of these guys did it. And she picks the goat in the ad and it's Mountain Dew and it's funny and it's hilarious. But there are a lot of subtexts that were very sensitive to people. And I come, and I guess like my whole defense of it was really that, hey, Tyler is from a generation of kids that compared to the rest of us who have grown up with either the notion of your parents are old enough to remember what's like segregation in America and what slavery and what racism, like pure, unadulterated, there's no hiding it. Signs say, you know, no colored or negro or no niggers like that they're old enough to remember that or you're my age and you're like in heading into your 30s where the world has tried to tell you that we've moved on in some sort of post-racial society where <laughs> everything has been fixed you no longer care about that less than a couple hundred years ago black people were property and what litany of other minorities aren't represented in a lot of other places but the the big notion of that piece which was so controversial was that you know who gets to decide what's racist and not racist Tyler mm -hmm. is old enough and from a generation, again, to my earlier point, that speak a little bit more openly about racism. They talk about, from someone who's black, they talk about team light skin, team dark skin, and go, this is stupid. They're the kind of kids that grew up in white suburban LA, but had white friends who dropped the N-word. They were the kind of kids that, you know, Tyler loves Wes Anderson, but being a black kid from LA who loves Wes Anderson is a little weird when you're not a black kid from LA who's really into maybe like the hundreds and sneaker wear culture. And, you know, so I think I wanted to give Odd Future more credit because I feel like creatively they were doing what resonated with the people who buy Mountain Dew and listen to Odd Future and to the brand managers of Mountain Dew, like you weren't really doing anything wrong. I think we do live in a society now where, especially, and we're seeing it now with the kind of times that we live in, you know, things aren't very equal. I work at Carrot, which is a really great place where I think we have really great diversity, uh, men, women, people of color. But I've spent a lot of time in my career being the only person of color somewhere. I spent time in I'm so, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned yeah. that. Um, because, and, and this is speaking to, I spoke at a conference back in August of last year, Weapons of Mass Creation Fest. And one of the things that we have brought up was kind of what it's like being the only black employee right. in a creative space and what that is like. Can you speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. And I think that's, and that's what it was. Like if you read the article from Agency Spy, you read the comment, a lot of people were basically like, you're using the textbook definition of racism. And, and I'm like, yeah, I am because that's the thing we can all agree on racism is. But, uh, <laughs> but what a lot of people were bringing up, which is probably what's more or less important is that the ad brought up an uncensored, like in uh, the fuzzy feelings that we have about race. When I'm a six foot two black guy and I walk into your elevator and you're, and the white woman grabs her purse and she's doing that out of both, you know, God knows what, but those are the subtleties or the subtext or the code that happens subtly in racism. And so the article leading into your question of like my job, it's that let's go back to my comment of like, not even comment, like I said that I got introduced to design in high school, but I also got introduced to design from growing up and having access to engineers, designers, cultures all over the world. So I, I, I jumped into this industry only to find out that the, like, the majority of people making money being designers or being artists are white. And a lot of that comes from the fact that they're going to school systems and have opportunities where people are opening up this world to them. So they're just seeing more of them go into that world. And you're not seeing mm -hmm. a ton. I mean, only 18 kids get picked every year to play ball in the NBA, but you have so many kids trying to play in the NBA. You don't have that many kids trying to go to school to be industrial designers, architects. And a lot of that is, is both the nature of inclusion, 
Like no one shows you an ad show up all the time when you're 13 years old and says like these people all work as designers or they work in advertising or creative. And so when you don't expose people to this, you find yourself in situations where I got hired at a place where someone literally was telling me, hey, Gitamba, we want this piece of whatever I was working on to be more urban. And I was like, you mean like, oh, no. you mean like more of like a metropolis feeling? So like a dense populace living in like a city? Like, no, Gitamba, more urban. And I'm like, so what is like more urban? So like more gritty, more. And then they're like, no, Gitamba, more urban. And I was like, oh, what? And he's like, so you want it to be more black. And, and that's the other part about it, too. There's, I mean, we we're at a time where everyone wants to be represented in almost every facet of life. We want to be represented in movies. We want to be represented in art. And even for me, like, it wasn't a topic that I was super really aware about until I found myself more and more just, I think in the last couple of years, especially as like race relations and diversity has become like a thing in America in the sense that, you know, big tech companies are releasing diversity reports and showing that it's predominantly white guys ad agencies and creative agencies are they're not they're they're not even necessarily releasing diversity reports but they're having conferences where they're discussing talent and diversity and you're you're watching an ad that comes off as insensitive or sexist or racist and it's because the people that worked on it were all women or we're all black or we're all white or god knows what and so not having that diversity shows in the work you're getting Gillette had a really racist print ad that came out a couple of years ago and a lot of it was one of those things where, like, if you're working in a climate where no one's going to bring up the fuzzy issues of race, of sex, and, and they shouldn't be something we should be, there should, it shouldn't be something so complicated that we can't still build something really great or, or create something really wonderful for people. But because we are sometimes not having those uncomfortable conversations because we're somewhere that's not staffed, like, with a diverse cross section of people to be able to give this, like, the kind of once over it needs culturally and like societal wise, then yeah, we, we push out stuff or we find ourselves in situations where like there's only one person of color working here and the work reflects it. <laughs> so it, it sounds like, and I can, you know, attest to this as well personally, that there's just these little microaggressions that happen that you are not even, I guess, you're not, I won't say you're not prepared for it, but it's like, I just came here to do my job. Right. Right. You know? And I've got to deal with like the little slings and arrows of, of other stuff. It's a, it's a totally different experience. And it's one that I think is, is not only hard to verbalize, but it's hard for others to empathize with. One thing that I've seen in, in particular within the past few months or so, of course, there's been a lot of talk around, you know, Ferguson, Mike Brown, Eric Garner, things of this nature. And there's been talk about what can the design community do to sort of I guess, speak out about it, like with protest art and things of that nature. And I noticed from like the mainstream design community, this deafening silence surrounding it. When, you know, this is a, a period at a time where there should be artists or there could be artists that are coming out and making, you know, strong statement pieces and, and things of that nature. And I had a designer tell me it was a white designer. He was saying that, you know, I just don't know what to say. Like, I don't know how to even kind of start the conversation. And in one way, that silence kind of makes you complicit by not saying anything. Right. But what do you think are ways that we can even just, I'm saying we, I mean like the royal we, but what are ways that we can begin the conversation so it's not so awkward? You know, like, that's like a fantastic one. I think there should, I feel like first and foremost, it's just like, you should feel comfortable saying like, hey, I know this is like a thing, but I don't know what to do. And that's fine. I think that just like opens up like one of my favorite podcasts and one of my favorite cast of characters are the guys from On the Grid, Andy, Dan, and and Matt. And they're three guys, three white guys who are incredibly culturally aware, great designers, great thinkers. And one of the things I love about them is that like they are never hesitant to say like, we don't know, but we know it's important and we need to talk about it. And I, and I respect that so much. That's like first and foremost is that if there's one thing I learned about at Apple was that like a lot of times, like I don't know the answer, but if you give me enough time or you want to work on something together, we can go find that answer. Cause I, I feel like a lot of times the motive, like the people like to think that these things are unsolvable. Like we can't solve living in a country where people are dying from gun violence. We can't solve that. We live in a state of like, such high crazy policing that people are basically getting away with murder 
and we can't solve public transportation. We can't solve healthcare. And and that kind of goes back to my 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 whole thing. Like designers in the 2015 shouldn't just be taught. And I'm saying black, white, Asian, like schools and should not just be teaching you how to be a designer to make pretty things. Schools should be teaching you to be a designer to go tackle tough as like I don't know if we can swear, but like tough as hell. Um, yeah, you can uh, swear that. Like tough as fuck. <laughs> like you got to go solve some tough as fuck things. So like. Andy is a great example from On the Grid. He really wants to figure out ways. He lives in Baltimore, a city that's mm-hmm. constantly changing. He's one of the smartest people I've ever listened to. I've never met him in real life, but like he's one of the smartest people I've ever listened to. But he asked that question too. And for me, I'm the kind of designer that goes, well, let's think about this first. Before we even think about things as a designer, let's just think about this like as the level of interaction and strategically what's going on. And then you start to ask yourself, like, what can you do? Some designers are like Milton Glass, uh, Milton Glass, who will like make the beautiful I Love New York or the beautiful posters that make us all feel something. So we give money to an organization that will then try to solve the problem. So there's that kind of like of designers working with their skill set to do something. So how do we use our skill set to motivate people to think about this topic? And that's probably like the first thing. And then the next level would probably be like, how do I get involved? And so usually you're like, how does someone like me go talk and deal with like policing in my state? And maybe that's like going to town meetings and figuring out how did the city design the police system? Like, and if you have to, and that's the whole thing, our police system is designed. So in essence, we have the police force that has been designed for the time that we live in. And at the same time, if something is designed, it can be redesigned. It can be rethought out. But then you're going back to just as like, instead of having conversations about usability testings for an AT&T website, maybe we need to be having usability testing tests for how the police interact with the public by making a survey, designing some way for us to gauge civic interaction, designing ways for us to better understand the data being generated by police. So all of a sudden, like you can just start using some of the vocabulary, some of the skill sets and some of the even outputs of being a designer to go tackle problems that have nothing to do maybe with like getting an artifact, like a piece of printed material. It might have to do with like, hey, because we helped build a better system to, you know, help our police talk about the things that were happening in our city. So instead of having it being like intense police force, maybe it's like build something that helps engage the, the civic like community. Tell us where broken windows are. Tell us where potholes are. And we built a mobile system for you to do that. So it works the way that you use it every day. So civic design is like a huge space. I think it's going to blow up in the next few years as you see designers and engineers start to go, how are cities designed and how can they be redesigned? How can we design it so that they make better decisions about how we want to live? And, but you got to get comfortable, comfortable talking to people who are not going to be your traditional design clients. They're going to be city hall. They're going to be like the people attached to cities, which are like policy-making bodies. And you're going to need to be comfortable speaking their language, becoming experts in how they do things so that you can tell them, hey, we can design a different trajectory for whatever this is. I really like what you said, that if something can be designed, it can be redesigned. Absolutely. I think that is so important for just designers to know in general. Like just because something is the way it is now doesn't mean that it can't change or you can't use the skills that you have to try to make it better or more usable in some sort of way. Absolutely. I think one of the, there's a really great Steve Jobs video that is out there from his like years of being kicked out of Apple and before he came back. And he's kind of, it's very old and it's a real small clip and it's just him, beard, and he says the most insightful thing ever that's kind of always stuck with me is look out into like the world, look at everything that's around you. All of that was designed and it was designed by people no smarter than you. And like, once you understand, like that's literally how the world works, you can do whatever you want. You can redesign things. You can rethink, like you can rethink everything, food, like technology, like education, because the people that came up with the way our kids go to school today were people who were designing for a military. So (laughs) the way that we deal with medicine, the way that we deal with like our cars and our city were designed with people a long time ago with a limited body of knowledge. But because we live in a time where 
things are so sacred and things are so uncomfortable sometimes to have conversations about, they're above reproach. We can't, we can't change it. And I'm like, and, and we're, there's a really great book that, uh, again, mentioning Andy from On The Grid made me read. Uh, he didn't make me read it. He suggested I read it and I loved it. But it's called The Beginning of Infinity. And one of the greatest things that it says in that book is like humans are like the one kind of species where we have a mind that's built for us to allow us to create universal explanations for things. I can tell you how a quasar is because we've created the knowledge that lets us understand so many aspects of like, you know, cosmology, astrology, mechanical engineering, glass, lasers. And at the same time, to build those things was to be a universal maker. So, you know, if you're both these things and you're kind of optimistic that not only can we fix it, but we can also fix the problems that this thing that might become great for us might create some bad things, then there's no reason we can't design better things. That should be like the Hippocratic oath of every designer. You know, first thing first, we're going to make it better, you know, and then everything Mm -hmm. else. (laughs) No, I like that. That's awesome. I like that. So let's let's scale back a little bit from the serious talk. Super here, heavy. It's like, the right, how do super we heavy. Like, I, it's so funny, but that was literally like <laughs> the episode of On the Grid. Gitamba just likes to ask really esoteric questions about very serious things and then attempt to go solve for them. <laughs> if you weren't a designer, what do you think you would be doing? I would be an animator. I grew up in Africa and in Europe and in Asia in the 80s on a heavy helping of Japanese like animation in the 80s and Japanese television. And to this day, one of my, my loves is Japanese animation. Like Japanese hand-drawn cell animation is a meticulous art. And it required a kind of patience that like I never developed for animation, specifically cell animation, where I remember as a kid going to Disney Animation Studios and talking one of the animators working on The Lion King. And I was like, how long, how many drawings is like a minute of animation? It was some astronomical number. And I was like, holy crap, I can't do this. <laughs> like, but but um, no, I, I would love to work in animation. I would love to someday like be a producer of a really great animated feature or an animated TV show. Like I, I think animation is, is this medium where you can almost anything is possible and i'm such a big fan of like uh, specifically more or less japanese animators and directors that have made just beautiful animation or really great stories in a format that felt more real than film but at the same time allowed me to suspend my belief and take me to somewhere visually that is just really amazing so yeah definitely animation (laughs) What are some of your favorite anime series? Oh, wow. That's so classic, like, TV-wise. I've watched all of Dragon Ball Z in French and in Japanese. Uh, That was, like, the big caveat. So growing up in Europe in the 80s, France was importing almost all of its entertainment from Japan. So I grew up on tons of Japanese television dubbed into French. Wow. So Dragon Ball Z, there's one called City Hunter, which was, like, a cop detective show. Something newer that a lot of people might know. I love anything from... Sinashiro Watanabe, who did Cowboy Bebop, who did uh, Samurai Champloo. I'm a big Miyazaki fan, so all of his films. I'm a big Studio Ghibli film uh, guy, so everything that they've made. Mononoke, The Wind Rises, Grave of the Fireflies, Howl's Moving Castle. What else is really out there that's really been great? There's some really great stuff that's come out, like FLCL. There's some old 80s stuff, like Fatal Fury, The Motion Picture. Oh, my God. Let's demon that's, demon six and Juku. That's pretty esoteric. The yeah. uh, Fatal Fury. Yeah, that's pretty. That's the, <laughs> Fatal Fury is like the, I, I will watch. I'm gonna watch that later tonight, man. Like even Galleon, both the TV series, the ending movies, and the new movies that are coming out. There's just I'm a big fan of esotericism. People that seem to have like this sacred knowledge that can only be taught by mentorship through apprenticeship through Mm -hmm. proxy you have to be near them you have to engage with them and i feel like animation i feel like even specific movements and styles of design i'm a big fan of japanese animation as well as japanese design so specifically japanese industrial design from people like muji's different two different creative directors naoto fukusawa who's a great like legendary industrial designer kenji hara and and those are just like there's and they come from a type of 
culture that embraces imperfection, embraces wabi-sabi, and embraces umami, which are both words to describe intangible feelings that can't be described, but we all feel. And that's how they like to design things. And yeah, there's just something about Japan that I've always kind of gravitated to or towards when it comes to their art and their music and their culture. And I think that's also why like, I was a big fan of their animation and design. Have you visited there? Yeah, I spent a week there in August with my girlfriend and two weeks in Seoul. And as a kid, I had an aunt who taught French in Kyoto. So I grew up spending some time in Asia, too. Nice, yeah. nice. What's the last good movie that you saw? Man, I watch... I'm a film buff, man. I don't know if you know this about me. I watch an obscene amount of film. and uh, But the last thing that I watched that really moved me was my Japanese friends were just in America for the holidays and we watched The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness which is the documentary about Studio Ghibli Um, and it's great because Miyazaki and even just in general that whole studio is very protective of their image of their work so there's not a ton of of documentaries there's not a ton of like behind the scenes of how they work and it's just an intimate look at Miyazaki And what's so beautiful about it that kind of caught my attention is how much Miyazaki has become the old master of like, of this kind of storytelling, but also Mm -hmm. how, as a man of the 21st century, how attached to things I am, whereas Miyazaki is kind of going, we're going to close down the studio. It's just a name I found on the side of, of an airplane when I was a kid. Today is beautiful. Let's go walk out into the distance. Like I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, like <laughs> he has such a he's someone who I appreciate the kind of internal torment that drives his work, the kind of perfectionism that drives his work, the kind of competitive nature that drives his work. But I'm so jealous of how detached he is from it as just stuff. And I realize mm-hmm. how much more I'm at like like enamored with things and i and i would love to get to the point in my life where i'm just like not that much about things and and just more about you know producing this really great work and kind of being about other stuff okay last question well sort of last question favorite mf doom album wow oh geez that's, that's <laughs> oh god you got a yeah, tough question tough question it depends on my mood okay um, i i you know what it like i wish this guy I mean, first and foremost, just to give uh, the listeners some background, Doom is lyrically gifted, but also I think his his just immaculate dedication to the character that he's imbued in these records, um, mm-hmm. and he's done it by both being Victor Vaughn, a younger version of the person that he becomes, which is Dr. Doom, but I, I could talk about it for hours, but I think... My favorite record would probably be Mad Villainy because that record is 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 witchcraft. It's it, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense like man there's so many like there's just so many feats of lyrical like like flexibility like he's got a kind of acrobatic flow, he's got a kind of storytelling that's rich and that whole album is just about like showing how gifted him and Madlib are. Yeah, and, and so yeah, and my favorite track on there is Accordion. Next up would be like Rhinestone Cowboy, and then like Meat Grinder is just like literally just him list, like watching someone like freestyle like it's nothing. But I mean, I've been listening to Matt Villainy, mm, Food, which is another great record, Born Like This, which has actually got a great remix by Tom York of Radiohead on it of a Doom song. Really? Yeah, there's the guy just has like. I'm really disappointed that he hasn't come out with something substantial in a long time. He just released a record with called like it was another mashup of him and a producer called Neruvian Doom, and it wasn't very good. And mostly in the sense that like I don't really care for anybody else. I just want yeah. someone to produce like fantastic sonic landscapes for Doom to go do what he does best, which is like just make other rappers seem just incredibly basic. <laughs> Now, I, I didn't hear, I know that he did an album with, I forget the, the guy's name, Janario something. Janario Jarrell or something like that. Oh, J.J. That Doom. Was, oh. Yeah, J.J. Doom. J.J. Doom wasn't bad. Keys to the Cuff. It's got one of my favorite songs on there, Hello, Govna. It's got some great skits. It's got, but it was one of those things where 
like the producer, like one thing a lot of people don't know is like, even though he's very collaborative, he's, he's almost incredibly meticulous. He's, he's his own really great producer. So working with other people, you see the fight between him and the other producer. But on Mad Villain, you had Mad Lib, you had Beats by Jay Dilla, and you had Doom. Oh, it was just yeah. like the perfect storm. I'm kind of waiting for Doom Starks, which would be yes. MF Doom and Ghostface yes. Killer. And I want like a like a God. I, I don't think it shouldn't be Mad Lib. I kind of want I kind of want like Tyler the Creator to uh, produce it, and I want. Start. I want Ghostface, and I want I want Doom, and I want Tyler the Creator to produce it. And I feel like that record would just it would mess with people. It would be a rec. It'd be like the record of the year. People would listen to it. They would they would write like great theses on that record. <laughs> I want there to be some, and I mean I'm sure in both I'm sure Marvel would probably have a fit about this if there was some kind of really dope like animated Doom. Iron Man, like amalgam of some sort, and like an animated video. I'm not gonna lie, I have days where I think about that pitch, like, like <laughs> I think not, and like I think about it like as not even animation. There's definitely like, and this just kind of goes back to like, if something can be made, I just need to figure out how it gets made. But I love that I, I'm a big comic book dork. I tons of Iron Man comics around me right now. Fantastic Four. I got everything here. But I, I've had that idea. Like, it would be great if if Ghostface and MF Doom came out with Doom Starks, and it was something tied into the comic books. Like, I've always wanted to tie the comic books with the writers that I really like of both those characters, and I'd mm-hmm. like to tie it in with something official at Marvel and make it a thing, make it a, like a comic book, make it animation. And I think about it a lot. Like, even myself, I've been trying to. I've been thinking about that pitch because I'm I'm secretly going to pitch Doom Starks to Marvel at some point. I'm just waiting for the right time. <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find you online? Um, yeah, so I am incredibly easy to find online. There's Gitamba.com, which is my Tumblr, which is more or less just a repository of where I post what I'm reading about, what I'm thinking about, what I'm listening to, where I'm traveling. I'm on Twitter as Monument Sinking which is a very long Twitter handle that I created in college and I just don't want to change. But uh, I'm on there pretty often and I love talking to people. And, and especially if you go to the About page on Gitamba.com, it lists all the different places you can find me from SoundCloud to RDO to Last.fm, Hype Machine, Twitter. I am on the internet I am, and, I'm, and I'm incredibly accessible. <laughs> awesome. Gitamba, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me. I think this has been a really great conversation that I think a lot of people will will listen back to this multiple times and really kind of get something from it each time they listen to it. A lot of what you had to say just surrounding mentorship and about what designers can do to be better designers and things like that. It's just it's really just important things that people need to hear. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, for making the time, I'm more than happy to always talk about it. And I'm I'm also really happy to talk about it as something that's incredibly accessible. I'm super lucky that I've been in the right place at the right time and even known the right people that's let me work on some of the coolest stuff, interact with some of the greatest minds. And I don't believe that should all just be locked away to people who pay for fancy art schools or have to move away to go live near it. I think the more we can openly talk about it, the more we can share resources, the more people can just ask questions, uh, the better. I agree. I agree. Again, thank you so much. Anytime. And that's it for this week's show. Big thanks to Gitamba, Sila, and Gita. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Gitamba's work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp Hover and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses all over the world. MailChimp also supports the creative community through conferences, events, even podcasts just like Revision Path. So help support a company that supports the creative community. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Like I said at the top of the show, with over 250 top-level domains, I'm pretty sure you can find something awesome. 
Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code 28DOTW at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Today's Monday, so there's six free goods waiting for you to download and use right now. Just go to creativemarket.com, download those, check them out. And don't forget to nominate us in the technology category over at podcastawards.com. This is the last day for it. And please donate to the GoFundMe campaign so I can make it to Austin for South by Southwest for my presentation. Links to both of those are going to be in the show notes. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by yours truly, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, They See Me Growing, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps get new listeners. It helps get the show out in front of more people. We move up the rankings in iTunes. It's just a great thing, so please do that. And like I've said before, I'll read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.